This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Kenan Ferguson, who is sitting next to me in real life, um, and he is the editor of The Big No, which is a compilation of essays that were pulled together from a conference, and I'm going to let Kenan tell us a little bit about that. This was published, The Big No was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021, um, and it's a discussion of essentially the capacity to not only say no, but act no um, in context of sort of life and philosophy. Uh, but I am also going to ask Kenan to talk a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Kenan to the New Books in Political Science podcast and tell and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Kenan. Hi, Lily. It's great to be here. It is great to be here in person as well. It has been a long time since I've talked over a microphone with an actual human being. So, um, My name is Kenan Ferguson. I am a professor of political science. Specifically, I teach political theory at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, I have been here for close to 14 years now. Uh, before that, I was at the University of South Florida. And I have uh, was also for a while, uh, when this conference went on, the director of the Center for 21st Century Studies, which is a now over 50-year-old uh, Center of Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And this was a conference that you were responsible for arranging and inviting the participants to um, not only present, but then afterwards taking their work and pulling it into this book. Is that correct? That's right. The, the, the center usually puts out a book uh, for each of our conferences and through the University of Minnesota Press. And we try to take some of the um, uh, surprise essays, but also the people that we've specifically invited to give us their opinions on the theme of the conference and put those together into books so that people can really see what was going on there at the time. So it's not just a sort of, you know, sort of a, a dialogue of what the conference was, but it was also the, the opportunity to think more fully about some of these ideas. And so when we think about the big no as the title of the book, um, this is not self-care, big no. no. This is this is not, you know, saying no to somebody asking you to do something in, you know, in uh, serve on a committee or, you know, do something else with your time. This is a much sort of more... More substantial understanding of refusal. 
um, rep, uh, and, and to some degree repudiation even. Um, so can you start out by talking a little bit about how you got to this theme and then how it to some degree evolved? Yes, I noticed at uh, the beginning of the last decade in philosophy, though not very much in political theory, I noticed a lot of attention to what I started thinking of as forms of negativity. Um, And many of those made it into this book. So uh, Afro-pessimism, what in France is known as non-philosophy, the Mohawk theorist Audra Simpson's idea of refusal, and then a, a sort of turn away from having to always provide a solution that could all could be traced to a lot of different political movements, but I can think of maybe um, Occupy Wall Street as being exemplary, where there wasn't an alternative project that was being proposed. It was a statement, this shouldn't stand. We can't do this this way anymore. And all of those to me seemed different from the usual demands of politics and even the presumptions that we build into thinking about politics sometimes, which is that there can't ever be a no without a yes. That is, there's always got to be a replacement. There always has to be a project that is brought forward instead that's supposed to replace whatever it is you're criticizing. And, and in, in that regard, because the, the book is fairly abstract, the essays are fairly abstract, but as you say, this is also at the, at the center, this question of politics. Um, and, and you and I both call ourselves political scientists on occasion, I think, um, sure. <laughs> or at least we think we do. Um, and so how do we think about sort of this idea of politics also distinct from philosophy. And and again, obviously political theory is the sort of umbrella under which many of these things live, but how is the big no connected to many people's concepts of politics? I think it was also in this time period and, and now looking back on it, it was connected to a lot of things that were going on politically, um, in the last decade as well. And probably the two most dramatic were Brexit, which seemed to be not about anything other than let's get out of the European Union. It wasn't, there there were false promises made about how we'd be saving money in England if we did this, but the, the animating power really did seem to be, we need to just leave. Uh, We're not going to participate in this anymore. And there was a remarkably small amount of discussion about what would be in its place, you know, which allowed a lot of people to make assumptions about it, but that wasn't uh, a necessary part of it. I also think that in distinction to the way in which we now understand the election of Donald Trump, I remember at the time there, there being a lot of resistance to 
politics going on the way that they had gone on. There was a sense at that time for the people who, especially for the people who voted for Trump, but actually, you know, a threat to those who wanted things to continue the way they had, that Donald Trump was just going to blow things up, that he was not going to be the usual politician in the usual left-right model, that he was just going to um, get rid of the old system. And so I think that explains a lot of the votes that surprised all the prognosticators who said, oh, you know, we've done these surveys and these are the people who are likely to vote. Well, a lot of other people voted for Trump that were not seen by the the likes of Nate Silver. Um, People came out of the woodwork to vote for him. Obviously, part of that had to do with his white supremacy, with his uh, anti, um, with his, his, let's say nativism. But I think another part of it also came from people who considered themselves apolitical because they hated politics and they saw in Trump a non-politics. I don't mean a neutral politics, but I mean the ability to blow up an order that wasn't working for them. And so I think very, it's, it's very hard in the way that we tend to make events like Brexit and the election of Trump as parts of a larger story, it's hard to recapture the negativity that was the power there because we always see it as moving towards something that in retrospect seems clear. Um, But that's, I think, part of what comes from our historicism, our our tendency to want to make a story leading up to the current day by, by moving all those non-narrative uh, dynamics that are part of politics into a narrative story. And and I totally agree with you in terms of thinking about, like, we, we always want the narrative. We always want to see how these pieces fit together and what comes next, as opposed to just having no, which obviously is what the big no is also about. Um, Especially those of us who make meaning out of things, by which I would say academics, journalists, historians, um, people who write books about events. That is, they want a story because a story is the way that we make sense of the world. And and no is often not a story. It's often the interruption of a story. And and part of what you what the authors are saying in this book is also about sort of coming to terms with what it means, what what the negativity means, what the sort of the rupture means, as opposed to the revolution. And and revolution is one of the points that is discussed in the book. Mm-hmm. But the outcome of a revolution is a new political order usually, um, whereas the discussion here is not necessarily to get to a new political order. It was, it's the, it's the disconnection. Um, and so it's, it's, it, one might think of it as an event without a teleology, right? It's not, this is what we're aiming for. It's, this is what we're doing away with. And, and that is very difficult for the human mind to sort of stay in touch with, I think mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you, because you lay this out so, so, clearly in the introduction, this typology 
of no. Um, that also leads you through the different sort of sections of the book and the different kinds of thinking that the contributing authors who are philosophers and political theorists, um, uh, they're not all of one kind, mm -hmm. um, but they are all sort of working with this idea of the sort of stopping. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what I wrote out? The first one is sort of resistance or subservience, um, subversiveness, sorry. Um, and how that, that one's the one that's the closest to understanding politics in, in a lot of ways. It, it's one that we have a lot of references for. Um, and it's the, you know, it, it can be Melville's Bartleby, who says, I would prefer not to, but doesn't come up with an alternative. It could be the no of the revolutionary who is interested in burning down the past, um, maybe in order to build a new future, or maybe because the, the past is something that is intrinsically oppressive and anything else would be a better alternative. Um, it's the no of... I think in the in our um, contemporary um, capitalist culture, uh, we might we might think of it as the no of throwing the shoe in the works of the machine. It's stopping the machine, whatever the machine is doing to us, um, because to sabotage it, sabot being, being the the term for shoe, uh, to sabotage it is better than to go on the way things are going. And I think of, of that kind of either political or economic sabotage as being a, an expression of such profound dissatisfaction that one is willing to risk things. One is willing to open up new potentialities and a rupture with the past because of the direction that the past has taken us so far. And this has some some Marxist components to it because part of part of the rupture is with regard to the economic system, and part of the rupture is with regard to the political system. And in many ways, in, in our sort of contemporary sitting setting, those things are intertwined. And so, capitalism and democracy in the United States, or whatever nominal democracy we we might have these days, or not, um, are 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 connected to one another. So the the issue with regard to scarcity, mm -hmm. when you have you know, so much access to food and housing and clothing. Um, how does that come into this particular kind of resistance? It, it often depends on who is the outsider to it. And there, there's an essay in this book by Joshua Clover, who looks at Marx, but also looks at Frantz Fanon, uh, seeing in both of them theorizing a uh, reaction to a political system on the part of those who are both participants and excluded simultaneously. In the part of Marx, that's the worker. In the part of Fanon, that's the um, the colonized, the person, the, the person whose land and body is the object of power without them, in, in fact, being able to participate in the political system or direct the political system. But in both cases, the only possible reaction sometimes seems to be that of 
refusal which converge on violent refusal. I'm, you know, it could be the general strike. It could be the, rev- the national revolution. It's the idea that this um, system which excludes me is one that I'm going to refuse to continue to take part in. And there has to be a better way out there. And it, in fact, doesn't even matter if we've never found a better way. There just has to be one to the point that people are willing to sacrifice their lives to build new forms of solidarity, to create new senses of self that come out of the saying of no. And Clover's interested in his essay really in finding the structural and conceptual commonalities between those reactions. But I think we can generalize to a lot of, uh, transnational and as well as local political responses that are about building kinds of no's which are communicative to one another. And, and so in, in this way, this is also where we first to first get to the place where you can throw the shoe in the machine and Mm -hmm. stop it. Um, but you may not have a, a sort of plan for what happens after that. Exactly. And you don't have to have a plan. It's enough to say, this just this does not work for me, and I refuse to go along with it. Um, we tend, in retrospect, to say, oh, this is the beginning of the, you know, the revolutionary nation or the post-colonial moment or the beginning of the union or that is we we tie that moment into whatever comes afterward but that's not necessarily the intent of people who are doing it and in fact you know in cases like say the arab spring the consequence may have maybe something that nobody actually participating in it wanted but they just knew that it wasn't enough to go on the way that things had been going that there needed to be a rupture of some sort um, and, and so this is the first of the three-part typology mm-hmm. is this first form of the no that also understands power, but resists it. So it, it is really connected that way to sort of political understandings of power. The next one is really fascinating to me because um, I kept thinking of, you know, the movie Sliding Doors, um, <laughs> which we, is really simplistic. Uh, we, we are filled with multiverses now, so. <laughs> yes. Um, is the forking paths no? Um, and, and of course, this is about sort of different, different paths that are going on that do not necessarily meet, but are sort of another conception of how the world is working and not working with us necessarily. Can you explain a little bit about the forking paths? Um, This one comes in this book, at least uh, out of the emergence in French theory, French philosophy, philosophy from the work of Francois Laruelle, who is a contemporary of the better known theorists, Foucault, Derrida, um, Deleuze, um, and who is fairly well known in France, but until the last decade or so really wasn't known at all to an American audience. Um, And what he called non-philosophy was an attempt to go back to the roots of what we think of as the philosophical project 
where abstract thinking is separated profoundly from lived experience. And to remake that founding of philosophy and to see what comes out of it. So if that had not happened, if we were to take the very foundations of philosophy and and make an alternative out of them, what might we have is the large conceptual question that, that Laurel and a number of European philosophers um, have been asking. The, I think, more everyday metaphor that comes to mind for me is that uh, is that of geometry, in which the geometry that we mostly learned when we were 13 or 14 is what's called Euclidean geometry, in which, for example, two parallel lines go on parallel to each other forever. And there are other forms of geometry, non-Euclidean geometries, that you can actually make discoveries with. So if you assume, for example, that two parallel lines meet at infinity, which is mathematically very different than our assumption, but makes sense in, a, in its own way, then you get different consequences from that. So in other words, it's a um, parallel path with different presuppositions that allow for all sorts of other recognitions, renditions, consequences. And one of the things that uh, has emerged in the in this French theoretical condition is this insistence on the real, the way in which thought is, as as an abstraction is always a move away from the real, the material, the physical, and to try and reconnect the the what we think of as philosophy to that real, and then to see what kinds of consequences come out of that. And I don't mean. I think Laurel there doesn't mean Marx's materialism by which you have a different kind of generative uh, force, um, historical materialism, but instead to talk about actual bodies, to talk about physicality, to talk about color um, as instantiations of a imposition of the world on thought as opposed to thought as being able to differentiate itself from um from in in the platonic sense from the our embodied realities and and so in this regard and again this is I just did an interview with Jen Forstall and um, Menica Phillips about the wives of the Western canon. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very much also about the sort of generation of knowledge and who's responsible and how it happens. And it's not the solitary thinker thinking, but it's actually how does a body interact with other bodies and minds to produce knowledge. Um, And this is along some of the same lines in terms of thinking about who is also responsible for having the thoughts and how they interact with our bodies, putting Mm -hmm. the two things together as opposed to having them apart or who, who and what are responsible because there's also an attention among uh, people like, let's say Donna Haraway to these, these um, not just the traditions of meaning, but also the 
the well Catherine Malibu and the plasticity of being that there's these these physical dynamics that make thought possible the more we understand about human brains about electricity about um, all sorts of what get seen as scientific discoveries as opposed to philosophical discoveries the more we can't really disentangle them in the way that we um, used to in thinking of, you know, one person, one idea, one sort of magical creation that comes from nowhere. And, and so how does this sort of change in how we might think about philosophy as it being in fact part of us as opposed to an abstraction or the forms um, and gosh, not to be able to teach the forms to undergraduate <laughs> theorists, <laughs> in interactive political theory, I don't know what I would do with myself. Um, but how is this connected to our understanding of no? I think this no can't be, it specifically can't be understood without understanding what it's a no to. And so, for example, uh, to use Laura Wells' examples, if we go back to Plato and understand the forms the the way we usually teach it is you know well let's argue about plato but then we move on as though plato is correct because we're following a long tradition of western philosophy that's built on platonic structures and then we somehow we fully you know, an undergraduate will point out, well, Plato couldn't possibly be right about this. And then we say, yes, that's an excellent point. But then we move on as though that has never happened. And what a no, a, a generative parallel no does is to say, let's do away with that. Let's see what happens over the course of generations if we don't accept these as right. So that could be alternative philosophical traditions. And I think one of the most exciting things in, in comparative political theory is this idea that we don't actually need the Western canon in which to ground politics, that in fact, we can look at other traditions, other traditions of writing, of non-writing, of practices, and we can make claims about politics, whether they're normative or historical or descriptive or ideal, but we can make claims about politics that don't depend on these consolidations of the Western model. They don't. They don't, might not depend on the nation state, or they might not depend on the abstraction of power, or they might not depend on the monarch. overcoming of family or the monarch. Or yeah, um, Foucault's idea of beheading the king. Like let's let's ignore the king. Let's not Let not have a king. Exactly. <laughs> and and that I think is a kind of a no. It's not overcoming the king. It's the alternative to that. What do these traditions that aren't grounded in our own normativity look like, which is at, at its extreme, it's an incredibly imaginative encounter, um, which is why I think this kind of no embraces things like science fiction. Um, it embraces uh, non-realistic thought. It looks into uh, modes of futurism, of what might come about, um, and it takes uh, emergence very seriously. That the things that we think of as 
completely unremarkable or even something that isn't to be noticed. If we notice them, we might build an alternative to them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and so this is, this is potentially, I mean, it, it's, it is both stopping the progression or the, the sort of train, if you will, of, of Western sort of philosophy, but at the same time, it is fairly radical in saying, okay, so we don't have a monarch. Let's think about people without monarchs. And what does that look like? Or let's even stop thinking about people, People. Uh, you know, in, in the, in the case of, uh, um, what we think of as politics, what would it mean to think about politics that isn't entirely about people or conceivably um, isn't about people at all, which is one of the things that uh, the the author um, Katerina Kolosova in here points to. What would it mean to think of non-human politics, which is also uh, something that I'm very interested in and have been working on for a while. And and so these these are now the two sections of of the typology that that was the forking path, um, and it's sort of this idea of the relationship between negative and affirmative understandings. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the third section is absolute refusal, um, and and I was just reading uh, the Wilderson article before you arrived. Um, and this also includes very close attention in a certain sense to groups that have been excluded um, and how that fits into our understanding of the big no. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about um, how absolute refusal operates. I, I mean, I think many people listening to this will have an idea of Afro-pessimism, will have heard of it, may, may have read quite a bit of it. What, I'm inter- what I find really interesting in that tradition is not the description of Black people as being excluded from the political world, which I think is common to everything from liberalism to most forms of progressivism. Um, But the idea that that's either something that should not or cannot be overcome. I think our usual model is to look at the history of race in the world or in the uh, in the United States and say, you know, how does this get fixed? How do we make a polity that recognizes black people as, and I'll put this in, in air quotes so that everyone can hear it just as good as everybody else. And what I think the emergence of Afro-pessimism as a intellectual tradition has brought up very clearly is if you take seriously the claim that the world has for at least the past 400 years been structured against blackness, then the idea that it can be, that that can be overcome 
and that you can still have a world which isn't structured against blackness is an impossibility. So what somebody like Wilderson asks us to think about is if that is in fact the case, and he's got a lot of evidence that it is, um, the very attachment to this idea that we can now make black people full humans is a, it's a mirage and it's a mirage that plays out on the pain suffering and death of black bodies. So his entry here is to try and he, he wants to deny a parallel that he himself talks about that he felt between other oppressed groups, Native Americans, Palestinians, and to say that the experience of blackness in the world is literally different from that, that it's non-comparable, and that the structuring anti-blackness of the world makes the uh, ideal of eventual equality not just impossible, but dangerous. It's one that makes a, a, a lack of humanity for black people ever impossible. And that makes their ability to thrive anywhere impossible because they're always trying to achieve something which is structured against them. And it's, it's structured... It not, I mean, it is structured, obviously, in terms of what we think about as the the structure of laws and institutions and politics um, that have been constructed in such a way in the United States, say. But this is also in an imagined capacity. This mm-hmm. is like how we live our lives and how Black people, you and I are both white people, how Black people live their lives in an imagined capacity that is so distinct from every other group. Exactly. Which is why work um, like like the Afro-pessimist idea of the undercommons has been so powerful. It means that to try and operate in the spaces of politics um, that are given by someone like Hannah Arendt shouldn't even be achieved, that you need to find a, these worlds of what Arendt would have recognized as the social, and that's where you can be a full person. That, in fact, the, there, there is a rejection of what most people think of politics, that is, a policy. Let's stop trying to change the world there and create the spaces in which we can thrive as full human beings, um, which is a kind of no to the demand of, of whiteness. It is the demand of whiteness is black people need to be more like us to an impossible extent um, or else we are not going to let them in. And someone like Wilderson points out, they're never going to let us in. Um, I don't think that's the only conceptual take that one can can um, have reading the history of race in America, but it's certainly a compelling one. And I think its emergence as one of the most exciting places in philosophical and political philosophical thought over the past couple decades points to the strength of its insight and its power to 
reject the, the assimilationist perspective. And, and so one of the questions I had for you in terms of this third section, the absolute refusal, the black refusal, um, that there isn't essentially a place of community um, across race is also this discussion that is mentioned both in the introduction and in a number of these latter essays of Indian nullification. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that term means in the context of our understanding of the big no? Um, Indian nullification comes from a uh, native theorist uh, um, of uh, I, can't, I can't remember the exact date of when he wrote it, but his name's William Apess, and it's the 1780s, I believe, that he writes this. Um, I'll have to look this up. But his idea of Indian nullification is the idea that laws which are unjust against uh, the structure of native peoples are not laws at all. And one can see in that a uh, premonition for people like Thoreau or Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. that one should not recognize unjust laws. But I think another way to take Epes's insight is to say laws which are anti-Indian, which are against native life, um, which the laws that he was writing about, he very clearly shows are, aren't laws that should apply to us at all. And we ourselves as natives can ignore them. Um, Now he's a lawyer. He's making this in a legalistic language of his time, but the implications, which, which the, which Simpson, Audrey Simpson are going to bring up to the current um, time are to say because of the way the world has structured its laws against us as natives, we need to look at to our own sovereignty and recognize the power there and res- not ju- well, not just resist, but refuse, not even participate in the demands that the Indian, lo- the anti-Indian laws are making that take away land, uh, existence, the possibility to thrive, and even in the time of Apis for the next um, 150 years, the the very idea of tribal status. And this comes into the discussion of the absolute refusal, because it is essentially a refusal of the people who were in North America to essentially have anything to do with this imposition of other sovereignty on top of them. The imposition is of power, it's of law, and it's even in terms of um, what we might think of as iterability. What does it mean to make sense of something? Anytime the settler colonial power structure says to a native peoples, you have to make sense of this for us in order for it to count. Um, We should understand that as a system of violence. And the refusal model is to say, 
no, I don't have to make this understandable to you. This does the only things that are legitimate are do not have to be made translatable. Um, that in fact, legitimacy comes from practices. It comes from experience with the land. It comes from language. It comes from aesthetics, and it comes from historical continuity. And so, it, when you finished sort of having this conference, and you had collected these essays, and you were editing them. Was there a, a thread of thinking or something about all of them that you found to be unique or helpful in your thinking as a theorist and our thinking as human beings? I think of them one, obviously as intellectual resources. That is, I think any of these essays are ones that I can draw on and learn from and build from. But I think equally importantly is the way in which they say to the reader, I hope, you don't have to think the way that you think you do. That is the demands that one always be saying yes, that one always have a positive project, that one always be building the alternative or proposing the solution. That's actually a process of um, quiescence. It's a, it's a way of shutting down people because it says if you can't come up with a complete alternative to you know, democratic representation or capitalism or power or war, you don't get to speak. Um, and in fact, I think the power of thinking through no in itself is... A, it can be a process of saying, maybe we don't have to come up with those. There's nothing wrong with coming up with an alternative, but in fact, part of the power inherent in politics is through processes of declining, refusal, non-participation, strike, um, and we have the language for that, but we usually only can hear it in terms of what the reality of the ultimate goals are. So those things which do not fit that model of this is the world that you want to build and it's inferior to us for these reasons, those get thrown out. And my hope is that people read any of these essays and think, well, let's not throw that out. Let's see what we can build in parallel or see what the power internal to that moment is or see what emerges from these concepts. And and so now that you have taught us all about the big no, what are you working on now, Kenan? Uh, I have uh, two long-going ongoing projects. Um, one, which I mentioned a little bit before, is trying to think of politics, not just in the ways in which someone like Jane Bennett talks about, not just the human in human relationship to one another, but actually to think about politics as outside the human what might it mean if politics pre-existed humanity? What does it mean to futurists if it's going to exist after us, whether that be um, through uh, computer thought or 
through apocalyptic thinking, and also what comes from thinking about um, politics at the very edges of what we think of as biopolitics, so so the, the ends of life. Uh, the other project is one that is a little earlier in development, but it's a, a critical approach to freedom, um, which I think like the yes in the big no, um, is always presumed to be a positive thing that has a uh, an automatic rhetoric of um, usefulness and goodness and that I'm a little suspicious of. And so I'm turning to alternative um, ways of conceptualizing the way that we think of as freedom. And specifically, I find myself uh, particularly inspired by the Milan Women's Bookshop Collective um, from the 70s, who really wanted to privilege and appreciate indebtedness through maternality um, in a way that was not non-hierarchical, that really embraced aspects of hierarchy and responsibility and um, our collective relations to each other that I think are uh, fundamentally a an alternative to our automatic freedom speak. Um, I think of uh, also recent work by like Libby Anker about that, that suspicious of freedom as well as the sociology of someone like Orlando P- P- Patterson, who's noticing that the language of freedom is always tied up in the language of slavery. And what might it mean to think about non-freedom as a political value? Well, I hope when you complete one or both of these, you'll come and talk to me about them again, hopefully in person. That'd be great. I'm always happy to talk here. So, <laughs> um, I want to thank Kenneth Ferguson for joining me today to talk about The Big No, of which he is the editor. This was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021. And I'm sure it is available at the University of Minnesota Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store in the neighborhood to which you would like to give a shout out? I always suggest that you find your neighborhood bookstore and order it through them. Here in Milwaukee, it would be Boswell's Books. But your own neighborhood has a bookstore, and they're always happy to order things. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kenan.